Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. Well, let's keep that Bible open. Over the past several weeks, we have been looking not at the doctrine of justification, but the results of justification, namely the benefits of the gospel. And last week, we learned that God's love is seen most clearly in Christ's death. God's love is seen most clearly in Christ's death. We also saw that God's love surpasses man's love in that God ordained the death of His Son, not while we were friends of God, not while we were obedient to God's law, not while we were righteous, But Christ died for us while we were enemies of God, while we were disobedient to the law, while we were slaves to sin. Verse 7 and 8, Romans says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God, contrast clause, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, aka enemies of God, Christ died for us. But more than that, we learn that Christ's death actually secures something. It does something for the one who believes. It secures eternal peace with God. Verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That is Christ. What I mean by that is that the blood of Christ appeases the wrath of God toward His people. Do you understand this? The blood of Christ appeases the wrath of God toward His people. That's the definition of propitiation. That is the penalty of death for your sin was paid by Christ's death on His cross. He died in your place. He died the death that you deserve. And when He died, His blood atoned for what? Your past your present and your future sins, securing eternal peace with God. And again, I reminded you last week, you're going to need to remember that at some point because someday you're going to sin and your sin in your, he- in your head and heart will condemn you. You're going to think that you've lost the forgiveness of God and that God is angry with you and that you have wrath upon you again. And you need to remember that you have eternal peace with God. Even though we sin, it doesn't change our status as a justified, saved child of God. Does it displease God? Certainly. Is it still sinful? Certainly. But our desire to earn God's favor, our obedience is to please God, not to secure us as justified. This is confirmed in Hebrews 10. 11 through 14 that says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Talking to the Old Testament. But when Christ, contrast clause, but when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you understand that? You are being perfected for all time by Christ's blood. 
See, but peace with God begs the question, how did humanity find itself in need of peace? How did humanity find itself in need of peace with God? What caused the hostility between God and man? And at what point did this enmity between God and man come into existence? Paul is going to answer those questions. He's dealing with biblical anthropology, the study of man. He's informing us about the human condition. And I can't emphasize this enough because how you view the nature of man, pay attention to these words, will affect how you view yourself, how you view your children, how you view the world, and most importantly, how you view the Savior. If you get the condition of man wrong, you get the gospel wrong. Do you understand this? If you get the condition of man wrong, you will get the gospel wrong. We're going to read verse 12. Pay attention here, Romans 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the only verse we're going to talk about today. I wish that I could have gone through three or four verses, but this verse has so much that we need to talk about that lays the groundwork for the following two chapters. See, in verses 12 to 21 that Josh just read, you will witness a theme of comparison and contrast between Adam and Christ. And this section of Scripture forms what theologians call the doctrine of federal headship. Okay, You need to know that word because these labels help give us classes or uh, categories so that we can take these giant ideas in Scripture and label them and communicate about them. This is called the doctrine of federal headship. That is that God has provided two representatives or federal heads for humanity. Do you understand this? Two representatives for humanity, Adam and Christ. All humanity is unrighteous because we are all born sinful in Adam. And in order to be righteous, we must be born again in Christ. Do you understand that? He's talking about the transfer of the kingdoms that I mentioned earlier, right? Going from one place to another. We are all born sinful in Adam, and therefore we must be born again in Christ. That is, we must experience a shift of representation from Adam to Christ. We must go from being dead in Adam to alive in Christ. From being guilty in Adam to being justified in Christ. From being sinful in Adam to being made righteous in Christ. This is what's happening in this text of Scripture. Okay, so let's look at the text one more time. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. Okay, he's opening. Pay attention to your grammar, people, right? We are smart Bible interpreters here. Okay, he's already opening with a comparison clause. Just as. Just as means he's comparing, comparing something to something else. Just as one, uh, uh, one man's sin entered into the world. Now, we know the one man that he's talking to or talking about here is referring to Adam because Adam is named twice in verse 14. But the object of Paul's comparison to Adam which is Christ, is not seen until verse 15. 
Okay, but again, I just want you to see the design of Paul's argumentation, a contrast and comparison between the headship of Adam and the headship of Christ. This is critical that you guys can see the distinctions between these two federal heads of humanity. Now, the next thing is that Paul wants us to see the origin of sin, the origin of sin entering into the world. Okay, what I mean by that is he wants us to see the root of sin and how the sinfulness of all humanity began with the sin of one man. I'm going to say that one more time because I want you to really, this is a thick, dense passage of scripture, and I want you guys to grasp onto these truths. Okay, he wants us to see how the root of sin, how the sinfulness of humanity began with the sin of one man. Now, Paul does this by inserting in this text in Romans 5, 12, a foundational truth found in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, we know our Bibles. We know what happened in the fall of Genesis chapter 2, and it's regarding the consequence of sin. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, I'll read it real quick for you. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, death is the consequence for sin. Death is the consequence for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Okay, death is the consequence of sin. But the Bible talks about death two-dimensionally. There's two-dimensional death. There's two-dimensional life. Okay, we have spiritual life and we have physical life. Okay, we have spiritual death and we have physical death. We also have eternal life and eternal death. These are really important categories for you guys to grasp. So you have a glossary of understanding as we move through the text. Okay, so I want you to look at this text with me for a second. God says to Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the obvious question becomes, in what way did Adam die that day? What way did Adam die that day? Well, to answer that question, you must understand how Scripture defines death. How does Scripture define death? And the answer is separation. Separation. In the Bible, death is separation. When the soul separates from God, the source of spiritual life, the soul dies. And sin is the catalyst for spiritual death. You understand that? When the soul separates from God, you are spiritually dead because you are away from its source of life. Isaiah 59.2 speaks of this disunion when the prophet writes, quote, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins have separated us from God. It's the catalyst that makes us spiritually dead. What does Ephesians 2 say? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the catalyst that separates us from God. And this is why Adam and Eve, what they do when they sinned, they hid themselves from God in their shame. They hid themselves. They separated themselves from God. And what else happened? 
they were separated by God from himself. They were expelled from the garden, literally separated from him. They were no longer holy and sinless, and they could no longer be in the presence of a holy and sinless God, and therefore their sin separated them from him. It broke their fellowship. And this is why scripture describes those outside of Christ as being spiritually dead. Okay, we are spiritually dead outside of Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive, those who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 4, 18, speaking of the spiritually dead, he says, Quote, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. You understand this? When you're spiritually dead, you're alienated from the life of God. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Do you understand that? Separation and union. Separation is death. Union is life. Yesterday, I was hanging out with the kids, and uh, Honor picked up a bunch of apricots off of a tree, and he laid them on the ground. They weren't ripe yet, and he said, Dad, these aren't going to continue to ripen, are they? And I said, no, they're, they're not going to grow anymore because they've been separated from the tree, and the tree is what gives the apricot its source of life. They've been separated. And this is why John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, separated from God, you can do nothing because you're dead spiritually and you will die physically and you will not be resurrected in the sense of an eternal uh, eternal body with the glory of Christ. Now, it's vital that we grasp this concept of union and separation because this theme is actually carried in chapter six. Look at the heading title in your Bible for Romans chapter six. If you've got an ESV or a New King James or an NASB, it'll probably say something like dead to sin, alive in God. Okay, it's an entire chapter about how in Christ we are separated from the power of sin to condemn us, and we're joined to God in Christ, giving us eternal life and peace. You understand that? So being dead to sin means what? You're separated from the power of sin. Being alive to God means you're in Christ, reconciled. Okay, but God's promise of death to Adam in Genesis 2 for his disobedience was not limited, and pay attention, stay, hang with me here, was not limited to disobedience uh, or his disobedience was not limited to separation of just the soul from God, but also the separation of the soul from the body. He's not going to die just spiritually. He died spiritually that day. They were separated that day. He also died physically that day in the sense that his body was no longer eternal and that it began the process of decay. That's what happened to Adam. It took 900 years or whatever by God's grace, but he began to die that day. Ecclesiastes speaks of this form of death, of separation. It says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
When your body and your spirit separate, that's death, physical death. Now, this brings us back to our verse here in Romans 5 that says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death, now we know what he's talking about, right? And death through sin. And so death, both forms, spread to all men because all sinned. Now, through Adam's disobedience, sin entered into the world like, think of it like a genetic disease, okay? Adam's corrupted and sinful nature, his spiritual and physical deadness was passed down through procreation of all men. We are all descendants of Adam, and we all inherited this original sin. Now, as a result, all men are born spiritually dead. We're born spiritually dead, with souls separated from God and needing a spiritual resurrection. You understand this? We don't just need a physical resurrection. We need a spiritual resurrection. This is why Jesus said what? You must be born again. You are spiritually dead and you must have a spiritual resurrection. You need that. If you don't have a spiritual resurrection, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In addition, we are born with physical bodies that die. We know this. And this is why what? This is why we long for a physical resurrection at the final coming of Christ. We long for that. We long for that resurrection body that doesn't hurt and that doesn't decay, and that doesn't break down. The point that Paul is making here is that sin is not just an individual act that we commit that causes us spiritual and physical death. Okay, sin is also a condition inherited by all humanity through our relationship to our federal head, Adam. Do you grasp this? Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die. Even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. Again, this contrast here. For as in Adam, all die. If you're born as a baby and you're not spiritually resurrected, born again, you're born dead spiritually, you'll grow up in a body that will die. Unless you're born again, you will not experience spiritual life, but you will experience eternal spiritual death which is not just God separating himself from the soul, but doing so eternally. This is the second death referred to in the book of Revelation. Now, this is the grand narrative of the Bible. I want you guys to see the narrative of the Bible and talking about death and life. If you don't understand that Genesis is about people, humanity dying, and that the New Testament is about Jesus bringing life, you miss the Bible. You miss it. We were in perfect union with God in the garden. Humanity was in perfect union with God in the garden. We had spiritual life and bodies that would never die. That was Adam and Eve in the garden. But sin separated us from God, corrupted our bodies. And as a result, what do we need? We need a redeemer to do two things. Two things. First, we need him to reconcile us back to God, which is the centerpiece of Jesus's ministry. No one comes to the Father except by me. We need two things, right? We need him to reconcile us back to God, giving us eternal spiritual life. And second, we need him to conquer death, securing us resurrection power, giving us eternal physical life. 
You understand that? We need those two things. We need to be back in union with God to have those two things. In Christ, this is exactly what we get in the gospel, eternal life, both eternal spiritual life and at the final coming of Christ, eternal physical life and a renewed heavens and earth where we're going to dwell with God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I know this text, you know, it's, it's easy to go, that might be a good spot to stop the sermon. But if you look actually at the last phrase of verse 12, I think it's the most important part. I want everybody to look at your Bible and read the last phrase in 5.12. It says, because all sinned. And what does this mean? What does this mean? This is one of the most important phrases in this chapter. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Because all sinned. All right, there's two ways to interpret this. Okay, first, you can interpret it how I used to interpret it about seven years ago. And you can interpret it as death spreads to all men when they sin. Death spreads to all men when they sin. I used to believe in the doctrine of the age of accountability. Okay, this is a common position. First, uh, they would interpret it, death spreads to all men when they sin. And this is essentially interpreting uh, that children are not born as sinners, but become sinners when they commit their first sin. That's how I used to interpret this seven years ago. But this interpretation is inconsistent with the natural grammar of the verse, the line of argumentation that Paul is using, the theological positions with the rest of Scripture regarding this issue. The second interpretation, this is where I stand now. The second interpretation is that death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam's sin. All sinned in Adam's sin. In other words, all people experience death because all people have Adam's sin imputed to them. Pay attention to that word, imputed to them. That is, Adam's sin is assigned to all men because Adam is mankind's representative head. You get this. Adam is our representative head. He represents us, and therefore his actions are imputed to us. Now, I'm going to offer you three pieces of evidence to support this, okay? Three pieces of evidence to support this. I want you guys to pay attention here. First, read Romans 5.18. Look at your Bible. Read Romans 5.18. It says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted the condemnation to all men. How do you get around that? Through one transgression, one sin, talking about the sin of Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's headship. That's federal representation. This again clearly shows the relationship between Adam's sin and the universal condemnation of humanity outside of Christ. There is a real federalism and representation in the scriptures that you cannot overlook. Second, look at Romans 5.19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What is that? That's imputation of sin that you didn't commit. That's imputation of sin that you didn't commit. 
Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase that I just said just for a second. I'll come back to that in a minute. All humanity is guilty of Adam's sin because Adam is the root of all humanity. Even Eve came from Adam. Okay, in a very real sense, when Adam sinned, all who came from Adam sinned with him because in a sense, we were all genetically there in him when he sinned. Do you understand that? Did you know like genetically you were in Adam? All humanity, every person that'll ever be born on earth was genetically put into Adam. And so when he sinned in a genetic sense, you were there. He's the root of you. You're not disconnected from Adam. He is your human root. Now, this is also why Jesus could not be born of man. Basics, guys. Gospel basics. Jesus could not be born of Joseph. Why? Because if Jesus was born of Joseph, then he would be of the seed of Adam, with a representative head of Adam, born in sin. So what happened? Jesus was born and conceived by what? The Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. If he was born of Joseph or of man and not conceived of the Holy Spirit, he would not have been a worthy sacrifice because he would have to go to the cross and pay for his own sin with his own blood. But because he was sinless, he was able to pay for our sin. Do you understand that? What an incredible, incredible detail of the gospel. And we know that unlike Adam, Christ as the alternative head was sinless. Christ was without sin. Many scriptures that talk of this. Unlike Adam, again, we're going to be doing some comparison here, so pay attention. Unlike Adam, who broke God's law, Christ kept God's law perfectly. And how was this validated? How do we know that Jesus was actually sinless? Well, it's the resurrection. The resurrection validates the sinlessness of Christ. If the wages of sin is death and Christ had no sin, Christ would essentially have to stay dead. If Christ was a sinner, he would have to remain dead. But the fact that Jesus was resurrected is evidence that he had no sin. He paid for our sins through his death but he couldn't stay death because the wages of sin is death and he had no sin. Therefore, he had to be resurrected, demonstrating his sinlessness. That's an amazing gospel mechanic that you need to remember. The resurrection validates the sinlessness of Christ. Now, imputed sin also is the reason that infants who have not yet committed acts of sin still die and are not resurrected. If they were truly sinless, then God would have to resurrect them or he would be unjust. The wages of sin is death. Now, this does not mean that all infants go to hell. This is where theology is important. It simply means that all humans, including infants, are sinners. We also know that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. We also know that God can save a person before they're even born. Charles Spurgeon has a really great position on this that many adopt, that all who die in infancy are elect. Now that's arguable. The reality is, is that we don't know. You know what we do know? Is that we have a good God who will do right 
and have perfect justice. And there will never be a time that we stand before God, with God, and say, you shouldn't have done that. No, we will say, oh God, you knew better than us. You were so much wiser than us. You were holy and everything that you did was perfect and right and glorious and just. That's what we will say. Now, why is this so, so, so important? This whole sermon is about what I'm about to say. Please capture this in this text. If we deny the doctrine of imputed sin from Adam then you must also deny the doctrine of imputed righteousness from Christ. Do you grasp that? If you deny imputed sin from Adam as your head, then you must also deny imputed righteousness from Christ as your new head. Let me explain. If we believe that our condemnation before God comes only by our own individual acts of sin and that Adam's sin has no representation or no condemning power over us, then we must also believe that our righteousness before God comes only by our own individual acts of obedience and that Christ's righteousness has no representative power to save us. Do you see that? That is so absolutely crucial. As John Piper says, if you believe this, you have no gospel. The gospel goes away. And what happens is that you have a Roman Catholic, works-based, pharisaical religion that is not good news and won't save you and will leave you unrighteous on judgment day. And why? Because you have no imputed righteousness. And every time you sin, every time you sin, you're guilty again. It's not good news. You don't have the inter- the, the imputed righteousness wrapped around you giving you eternal life. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel is that when I sin, I don't lose my status as a child of God because my righteousness is not what I am standing on by my obedience. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to me by faith. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You break one command, you lust. You lie. You misrepresent. You're guilty of the whole law every time. But if you have the righteousness of Christ, you're no longer guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you deny the imputed sin of Adam, you must deny the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the good news that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. Adam is a terrible federal head. Christ is our federal head. He does what Adam failed to do. He represents us well. He doesn't give us death. He gives us life eternally. We can't lose that eternal life because I'm not standing on my own obedience. I'm standing on Christ's obedience, his perfect obedience to the law. His righteousness is what I will be judged by on judgment day, not on my own. I will give an account for my sins, but it will not determine if I am justified. Christ is the only thing that determines that I'm justified. This is what Paul is constantly getting at. This is the beauty and glory of the gospel. It's what makes this whole concept of that being dead and being reconciled to God so important. And it's what makes Romans, pay attention here, I'm almost done. Romans 8, 38 to 39. 
it makes these words worth memorizing. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing will be able to separate God's people from God's love in Christ. He's chasing you. He will hold you. He will sanctify you. He will discipline you. He will maintain and sustain your faith, the author and finisher of your faith. Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, separating them from his hand. My father who has given them to me, union is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. When you are reunited to Christ by saving faith, not trusting in your own righteousness, but trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone, who kept the law that you cannot keep. When you've been made alive, when you've been made new, you will never ever return to the former state of spiritual death and separation of God because no one will snatch you out of his hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the gospel, that it's so good. Lord, that you have saved sinners who could not save themselves, Father, that you have granted us by your Holy Spirit new life. Lord, that you've given us faith and sustained us. Father, that we are now reconciled to you through Christ. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.